I'm going to ask if we could turn to Genesis 4 this afternoon. Genesis 4. Genesis 4. I have wanted for a little while to talk about a Christian, uh, a Christian way of thinking about all of the discussion about social justice that's been taking place uh, in our country for some time. And I've been writing down a lot of things that, uh, you know, the topic is so big in some ways. I don't know if some of you have interacted with some of this. Uh, <laughs> I know the topic is so big that it feels like I could never say, uh, that's okay, no problem, hey, you guys know where to go? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm probably only going to deal with certain aspects of it, probably Lord willing next Sunday and, and then maybe on into, uh, <clears throat> what's the next month? We're in February, right? March, whatever that is. Um, I, I won't do it justice. I'll try to point you to some resources that if you want to keep um, thinking about um, a Christian view of social justice issues that you can get some other help. But as I was preparing for to talk about it, um, it just sort of came to me that um, that this was sort of foundational for understanding that, and that is a basic view of Christianity and culture. Um, and so I'd like to address that this afternoon, and hopefully this will lay the foundation then for for next week. Genesis three, as you all know, uh, is where sin, the account of when sin came into our world. And it came when it came into the world, it affected um, not only the individuals involved, but the, the social order of things. And the curse came upon mankind, and it it, it disrupted the um, the the blessing of work uh, that God had given man to do in the garden. Work was a good thing, blessed by God, given by God, um, but it was perverted in in the fall, the woman and her work uh, became a complicated issue. Man, the relationship between men and women became complicated. Um, sin affected the, the whole social order. Um, and, of course, definitely in their relationship with God, it hurt that relationship. Uh, sin permeated their family. Um, their children fought against each other, uh, killed one child, killed another, Cain and Abel. So you've already got sin beginning to permeate the social order in the family. But of course, it doesn't stop there because families multiply. Families become tribes and peoples and nations, and they spread out over the earth, and they become identifiable groups with distinguishable characteristics and shared sets of values and a way of life. In short, those families eventually become cultures. And sin affects entire cultures, entire civilizations. And of course, sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. It brings forth the judgment of God. And that's exactly what we see in these opening chapters of Genesis. Basically, Genesis 1 through 6, you see the unfolding or the development of human culture um, and the pervasiveness of sin and ultimately brings God's judgment on that entire ancient culture when we get to the great flood that covered the entire earth. Moses is using um, this passage to help us to understand the origins of human culture. So I think it would be helpful if we read a little bit from this text. We won't read um, <clears throat> all of this, but maybe the beginning of... Uh, or the end of chapter 4. Let's go to verse 17. So, Genesis 4, beginning in verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. This is, of course, the same Cain who is so notorious for the murder of his brother. And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch... And of course, this is not the same Enoch that comes later in the, in the genealogy of chapter 5, who, who was not for God took him. But this Enoch, uh, to, this Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mehuyael, 
and Mehuyael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Notice the way this is spoken about here. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal, Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. So now here's another descendant of Adam and Eve. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born a, a son was born, and they called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And then just the beginning of chapter 5, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And Adam, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his own image and named him Seth. And the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And then he goes on, with the genealogy of Seth and his line, all the way down to the very end, look at verse 32, he ends with Noah. And after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And of course, then that leads into the account of the great flood. As I said, what I think Moses was doing here under the inspiration of the Scripture, under the inspiration of the Spirit, was giving us the origins of human culture. You can see that in several places here. First of all, chapter 4, verse 17. After Cain had a son, he built a what? He built a city. And he named that city after his son. Now, a city um, in those days was probably a lot smaller than we think of as a city, Houston. But uh, a settlement of some size, uh, not just the immediate family, but the extended clan, um, and cities, of course, grew up as places where culture can flourish. And the reason for that is pretty obvious. Cities are dense settlements as opposed to rural places where cultural influence can spread rapidly. This is, of course, the days before mass media. People couldn't get on the Internet. There was no radio to communicate your ideas. People didn't flip on the television. There wasn't even any printing press. So a city was where, you, where ideas uh, spread. That was the best place you could go to get ideas about a more efficient method of shearing your sheep or the best way to attach an iron axe head to a handle or the new tune on the pipe or who's the prettiest girl in town or ideas about goodness and truth and, and God himself. These are the kinds of things that would flourish in a, a city, a settlement. And you have another expression of culture right here in this text in chapter 4, verse 20. The first son of Lamech, he names his eldest Jubal, or Jubal. He is, quote, the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So there's a very specific kind of culture being passed on to his extended family and his clan and his people. They were um, nomadic herders. They were agriculture, agriculturists. Uh, and the father passes on his skills to his children and the, the family begins to practice agriculture and the whole community eventually is, is um, 
characterized by this because that's often the way it goes, right? I mean, today we live in a day when it's so mobile and there's uh, everything, uh, people can, can get an education and any different kinds of thing they want to get to learn about. Um, but in those days, for the most part, if you were the son of a farmer, guess what you were going to be? You're going to be a farmer. And if you're the son of a smith, you were going to be a smith. It's just, that's what you learned. That's what you could do. Um, and so he became the father of those who have, who live in tents and have livestock. I mentioned this morning that family is the most basic building block of culture. Well, here's a whole culture that sprung from this family. Um, these people are probably doing something beyond mere subsistence farming like Abel did. Even in our modern society, though, um, there are little pockets of people here and there who just continue this same sort of nomadic lifestyle and culture, and, and you can find these kinds of peoples different places in the world. This is the beginning of that kind of culture. The second son of Lamech, you see another expression of culture here. This, is, this son is named Jubal, or Yubal. He's the father of all who play the lyre and pipe. A lyre is like a, a stringed instrument. So this family is musical, and they share their music with each other, and they pass it down. And It's not just that Eubel played instruments. He is, quote, the father of instrument playing. He passes on this culture of music in his world. And, of course, music has always been a powerful um, shaper of culture and mirror of culture, uh, and no, it was no different back then. The fourth expression of culture is in their third um, brother. So we've got Jabel, Jubal, now we've got Tubal. I'm sure their mom was like, Jubal, Jubal, Tubal, whoever you are, get down here, you know, just like you are sometime, um, naming all their kids in a way that sounds similar. But Tubal came to actually identify his profession. Tubal is like our word smith. We have the last name smith. And uh, supposedly somewhere back along the line, that, that came from uh, the fact that the, the people, those people were smithies. That's what they did. They worked with uh, iron. They were a craftsman, a metal worker, and that's what, uh, that's what Tubal did. He was an artisan, and he not only uh, honed that craft, but passed that culture on in his, uh, in his family and in his clan and his sphere of influence. So you can see the beginnings of various expressions of culture. The Bible doesn't leave us um, uh, without some kind of grid of thinking about where this comes from and, and how, um, how this is, uh, fits into the outworking of, of sin and of redemption. So you see very quickly not only culture being expressed, but sin beginning to permeate culture. That's the second thing that we see. Sin begins to permeate the culture from the very beginning, just as surely as the people are sinners, so the expressions of their, um, of their persons, the, the expressions of their culture are tainted by sin. Corruption of culture was inevitable. And here's why. This is kind of the main point of this talk this afternoon. It's inevitable because culture is an outgrowth of our beliefs and values. Let me say that again. Culture is an outgrowth of our core beliefs and values. At the core of every culture is a cult. Even linguistically it's that way. There's a cult or a cultus, not meaning a false religion, I'm not talking about that, but I mean a core fundamental worship commitment, a set of beliefs and values, a worldview. And out of that, and your interaction with the world, springs forth culture. Culture, cultivate, cult, they all, they all kind of are related words. Um, they come from this idea of religious observance. And you could see this even in the ancient pagan cultivation of the earth, what we call agriculture, the cultivation of a piece of land, right? That was inextricably tied in ancient pagan religions to 
the worship of the deities, the fertility rites, right? You can just read a little bit of ancient um, uh, history and how, how closely those two things were related, which itself is a perversion of what God originally um, did in the Garden of Eden, right? God put man and, man and woman in the garden, and he, one of the reasons that he put them there was to what? Cultivate that garden. Our Bibles are, the ESV says, to, to uh, what does it say? I don't remember what it says now. To work it, to work it or to cultivate it. And of course, this was not to be done independently as autonomous beings, but under the, uh, the rule of God. They were to work the ground. They were not only to do that, but they were to raise up children, another expression of culture, the basic building block of culture. Um, and they were to uh, have dominion over all that God made, to, to take what God had made and, and keep creating it, to cultivate the land, to plant fruit trees, and, and to, uh, to spread the goodness of the world that God had made all across the globe as their family expanded. And it was to be a culture totally shaped by God himself. Um, but of course, when sin enters the picture, then worship is perverted. It becomes idol worship. It becomes man worship. And that, let me say this again, that skewed theology will inevitably skew the culture. Why? Because culture is an outgrowth of core beliefs and values. Culture making is inherently a religious activity. Culture is not neutral because the people that create it are not neutral. They have a certain view of, of, of reality. They have a certain set of values, a certain set of commitments. Everybody does. Everybody who's out there right now shaping culture has a certain set of values. And they may tell you, hey, we're just trying to be neutral. We're just trying to tell it like it is, just the facts. But everybody who is, is in any way shaping culture around us, is doing so from a particular uh, point of view. Henry Van Til said, culture, I love the way he said it, culture is religion externalized. It's just the externalizing of what you really believe and value. It's going to inevitably shape how you do your music and how you do your art and how you do business how you eat and drink and whatever you do. It's going to affect it. Culture is religion externalized. Culture is the social incarnation of a worldview. Culture is the embodiment of underlying values. And as such, it is possible, it is impossible, excuse me, for a culture to be free of value or value neutral. A society's business activities, its art, its jurisprudence, its education, all of its cultural artifacts are and will be inevitably shaped by what it believes, by what it values, by what it considers to be true or good or beautiful. And so if it's a Christian permeated culture, it will look a certain way. If it is a Hindu permeated culture, it will look different. If it is a Buddhist permeated culture, it will have a different look. If it's permeated by rationalism or existentialism or postmodernism, it will have a certain kind of look to it because culture is inevitably shaped by the worship commitments, the value commitments that the people have who are shaping it. One commentator said about this passage that by linking urbanization in this text, this building of cities, and nomadization, those who have tents and and work the land, by linking music and metalworking all together in the genealogy of Cain, the biblical writer seems to be suggesting that all aspects of human culture are in some ways tainted by Cain's sin. All aspects of human nature, human culture, excuse me, are tainted by sin. 
And we do see, of course, several specific outworkings of sin in that ancient pre-flood culture. Let me point out to you a few of them. So, one, chapter 4, verse 23, you see this one pretty obviously. It becomes a culture of uncontrolled violence and revenge. Lamech's song. Can you imagine what kind of tune would this song have? Something, something angry and full of angst. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge was sevenfold, if his revenge was complete and, and perfect, then mine will be 77-fold. It's going to be over-the-top, excessive. I mean, uh, exponential violence. Not like the law of Moses, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. No, this was a head for a tooth. And this was like, you slap me, I will stab you. I mean, this is the idea behind this. Lamech's um, just full of pride and... um, you just see the, the, the bully of a man that he must have been um, and the excessive violence that he was willing to resort to. And you can't help, I can't help but think that perhaps Lamech is capable of such excessive brutality by virtue of his son's own cultural achievements. Imagine uh, Tubal, the metal worker, family of metal workers fashioning swords and spears for Lamech to ensure that he's able to get 70-fold revenge. And, and he's couching his, his angry um, rhetoric in what kinds of terms? It it's, it's almost reads like poetry, right? In fact, this is traditionally called Lamech's Song. And, and of course, one of his sons is the father of music, right? And so he's he's taking the 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 expressions of culture, perhaps with the with the metalworking and and with the music, and it's all getting uglified and tainted um, by his own perversion. And in fact, that's exactly what's true in our world today. That 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 culture. It's not evil, and it's not always good. It's, it's an expression of human nature such that the arts can be uplifting or can be debasing, such that drugs can bring relief or bring great suffering and death. Can Technology can be used to provide energy and utility or can bring great destruction. All of these elements of culture can be tainted by, and in fact are tainted by, sin. And and that early culture was characterized by uncontrolled violence and revenge. It was also characterized by a perverted marriage and view of sexuality. Look at verse 19. There you have in the Bible the very first recorded act of polygamy. The very first perversion of what God originally created marriage to be. Now, of course, there were other perversions, even among the people of God at times, right? There were multiple marriages. I mean, some of the patriarchs, you look at them, and and should we say, well, then maybe it's okay? No, we say God made, in the beginning, one man, one woman, and what did Moses say? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother be and be joined to his wife. What God did was a paradigm, in other words. God did this, so you should do this. One man, one woman. In fact, the fact that the patriarchs in some cases had multiple wives is just a reminder to us of how easy it is for for God's people to unwittingly adopt the perverted culture all around us. We just Culture is that kind of thing where you just kind of almost breathe it in. It's like air. You don't even notice it because it's like everywhere. It's like the predominant... um, ethos of the world in which you live. So here we have the first perversion of marriage. Um, 
And not only was it a marriage that was perverted by polygamy, but it was also probably perverted by brutality because Lamech's poem, this angry poem about revenge, is directed to his wives, of all things. Say, honey, it's Valentine's Day. Wrote a little something for you. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, this just sounds like, like a threat, like, don't cross me, woman, right? Just this kind of thing, you sort of have to read the between the lines a little bit, but it doesn't take much to begin to imagine the beginnings of the kind of um, macho, vengeful, um, brutal culture that grew up around this man and around some of his family and his clan and, and his, uh, his broader culture. Um, doesn't take much to be reminded of the culture of domestic violence that exists in many places today, the culture of adultery and divorce and homosexuality and any kind of sexual perversion in marriage that really has become, sadly, uh, more pervasive in, in our, broader, our broader culture. And then, of course, you have one more element that's really brought out here in a general way with regard to a specific expression of sin in their culture. And that is, if you jump all the way to chapter 6, verse 5, it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In other words, sin had by that time entirely pervaded, almost completely pervaded that ancient culture. I mean, that God had his people, he had a few, you know, he had Noah, right? But, but by and large, that culture, however large it had gotten grown by that time, it was just saturated with sin. And of course, the wages of sin is death. And all through chapter 5, we didn't take the time to read it, but you, you, you read the effects of sin, right? So-and-so had these children, and he died. And so-and-so had these children, and he died, and he died, and he died. Just like God told Adam and Eve, you sin, you will die. And of course, then in chapter 6, God brings death on the whole world. So you have his judgment and the ultimate judgment that God will bring on all sinful culture that uh, stands against his rule and authority. But then thirdly, I think what you have in this text is a, uh, an amazing testimony of God's grace in culture. God's grace expressed in that ancient culture in at least a couple of ways. First of all, there was an appointed offspring. You look at chapter 4, verse 25. Chapter 4, verse 25. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. God has appointed for me another offspring. This harkens back to the language that God used in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Remember he said, I will raise up an offspring of the woman, a seed of the woman, who will crush the head of the serpent. And I don't know what Eve uh, thought, perhaps that Seth himself would be that promised offspring. I don't know. But the line of Seth, in fact, would eventually issue in the offspring, the singular offspring that God intended when he spoke those words back in chapter 3. Just like Paul says, uses that in Galatians, right? When he says, I'm talking about a singular offspring that God promised, which is in fact the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Deliverer, who will deliver from not only all of our individual penalty of sin, but who will in fact deliver his people from all of the effects of sin in the world, in our society, in our culture. He will deliver. Can you imagine a world that is completely free of sin in its, in its politics, in its rulers and governors, free of any sin? Say, nope, can't imagine that. Check. What about a world that's free of sin in business? No sin involved at all at your place of work. 
Amen. Wouldn't that be a blessing? Or no sin compromising the arts in any way. Or the sciences. Or social interactions and social life. This is what Christ will bring. Having a discussion with somebody this week about eschatology and when will that happen? I hope soon. I don't know. I, I know it will be brought to its consummation at the coming, at the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But there is an appointed offspring, but there's also in this text a godly line, a godly culture, a godly family. Uh, verse 5, uh, ch- sorry, chapter 5, excuse me, you have Seth's family tree. Uh, so in chapter 4, we had some of Cain's family tree. Chapter 5, we have Seth's family tree. And uh, it's very different in, in many ways from Cain's, uh, the line. Um, one of the things you see is in chapter 4, verse 26. Let me show you a couple of them, two things here, that make Seth's line different. Number one, people began in his clans to call upon the name of the Lord. Verse 26, to Seth was born a son, he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord, which is probably a reference to the beginning of public gatherings of of worship of God of some sort. Um, I talked this morning about how much families influence kids for the Lord, taking them to church and family worship. Here's the the beginning of of this um, sort of calling on the name of the Lord among these peoples. And not only did they call upon the name of the Lord in these clans, but they also proclaimed the name of the Lord. If you look at chapter 5, verse 22, we didn't read it, but just take a look at verse 22 real quick. And here you have the other Enoch, the Enoch that I referenced earlier, who walked with God. And in verse 24, sorry, I think I said 25, 22, he walked with God. And verse 24, it says, He walked with God and He was not, for God took Him. Which has got to be something you know, amazing. I don't know quite what happened. Maybe kind of like Elijah, remember, was carried up into the heavens. Um, this is a, a family that had some really good people in it. A clan with people not only that called upon the Lord, but also who proclaimed the name of the Lord. In fact, when you get to um, Enoch, what you find is in the New Testament, the Bible affirms that Enoch was not only someone who believed in the Lord and called on the name of the Lord, but he proclaimed he proclaimed uh, God, he proclaimed God's word. Um, Jude, Jude verses 14 and 15, Enoch the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, here here you get a little bit of a New Testament glimpse as to what Enoch's ministry was like. He proclaimed, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. Here's a man... He not only called on the name of the Lord, but he publicly called on sinners to repent of their sin. You imagine having a culture with people in it like Enoch. Men who would stand and boldly proclaim the gospel and call people to repentance and to come to God. There was another descendant, of course, in this line who proclaimed God's name, and that was Noah. Noah, who is called in 2 Peter, the herald of righteousness. So another preacher, another proclaimer of truth. What it is to, to be in a what a blessing it is to be in a society, in a culture that has known so many bold proclaimers of truth. In fact, I'm so thankful, aren't you, that even in our country, we have even today. Men and women, men, men who stand in pulpits, not women, uh, but men who stand and boldly proclaim uh, the gospel, who call men and women to repentance, who speak truth to the broader culture. 
This is not to say, of course, that everybody in Seth's line was a believer, but rather that through the Christian influence of family, this was extended largely to that broader familial society. And the culture produced Enoch's and Noah's heralds of the truth who called their cultures, their peoples, back to God. But in time, of course, even the descendants of Noah began to be utterly corrupt in their culture. And when you, by the time you get to chapter 11, there's the Tower of Babel and the rebellion of humankind once again. God confused the languages there, which on one hand is a consequence of sin. And in fact, all divisions among people have their roots in sin. In Christ, all those divided peoples are brought to one again, right? Ephesians. But also the division of those people is at the same time an act of grace because instead of God sending a worldwide flood this time to wipe out the peoples, he prevented them from being able to spread their wicked culture by confusing their languages. And those clans who were true worshipers of God then were distinguished by language and geography from those who didn't. And that became a grace of God. So, really that I think is, is, a, is, a, is a helpful sort of foundation for then um, beginning to think about how to live in our culture today and interacting with the culture and the cultures around us. And by way of application, I want to draw out four, what I think are four implications of this text with regard to the broader culture. So four implications. Number one, um, number one, all cultures are the outworking of a worldview a set of shared beliefs and values. All right? that's I've already made that point. But that's the starting place. All cultures are an expression of a worldview. That is a shared set of beliefs and values. Number two, all human culture is tainted by sin. All human culture, to some degree or another, is tainted by by sin, because all have sin, right? And, and I think the way this helps us, or should help us, I, in my view, is that it should help to keep us from making an idol out of quote-unquote Western culture, because our so-called Western culture is not untainted by sin. There are sinful elements that permeate every culture in the world. All culture is a mix of good and bad, depending on how pervaded that culture is with biblical thinking and or sin. And of course, even within a broader culture, there are many subcultures, right? You can live in America, you can have you can imbibe American culture, but there's high culture and there's pop culture, there's southern culture, amen, there's Texas culture, and there's those northerners up there. Um, there, there there's all different subcultures within a broader culture. And the church is nearly always a distinct culture of its own within the broader culture that is dominated by the world and sin. In fact, the more the broader culture diverges from divine revelation, the more countercultural the church appears, by contrast. But the point is that all human cultures, Western culture, Western um, Christendom, it used to be called. Christendom, that's an older name that is very uh, um, unpopular these days. 
Um, the idea is, is of, a, of, of a broader culture that is permeated to a large degree by the worldview of Christianity. But all culture is, per, is, is tainted by sin. That's number two. Number three is this. Not all human cultures, now I'm using cultures in the plural, not all human cultures are equally permeated by sin. And the corollary is, various cultures have been shaped to a greater or lesser degree by God's special revelation. So let me say it again. Not all human cultures are equally permeated by sin. Or, to say it on the reverse way, various cultures have been shaped to a greater or lesser degree by God's special revelation. So we can see very clearly, even in the beginning, the, the first unfolding of human culture and flourishing in the earliest chapters of Genesis, that there's a difference between the culture of the families of Cain and the culture of the families of Seth. There's a difference between the Canaanites and the Semites. There's a difference between the Edomites and the Israelites. No doubt there's sin in both, right? Israel is chastised by God again and again for her sin. She needs to reform. But one of those societies is built on a foundation of divine revelation. We saw this morning again, Psalm 147, not all of the nations have your laws, O Lord, but we, your people, have been given your revelation. So praise the Lord. They were especially blessed. And the more influential, the more influential that Christianity becomes within a culture, the more that culture is shaped by those biblical beliefs and values. Therefore, and this is my fourth and final point, and it leads, this all leads into that. Therefore, not all cultures are equally good, equally valid, or equally true. Now, I just have to stop right there. Let me say it again. Not all cultures are equally good. That is kind of a radical statement. Um, maybe not to us. It could be taken out of context and used in a wrong way. But that, I will tell you, that's a pretty radical statement in the, the, the broader worldview of, of where we sit right now in our country today. For me to say, not all cultures are equally good. Some cultures are better than others. While acknowledging that all cultures are tainted by sin. Kevin Bowder says it this way, cultural judgments are both possible and necessary. It is possible to say that some cultures are better than other cultures. Rodeo culture is better than the culture of the insane asylum. Amen? We'd agree with that. Academic culture, he writes, flawed as it is, is better than prison culture. If one is interested in fine chocolate, then Swiss culture is better than Swahili culture. If one is interested in respect for the aged, then Chinese culture is better than the American culture. One can evaluate cultures on the basis of other interests. Chief among them will be an interest in those matters that transcend all cultures. That is truth, goodness, and beauty. So I'll say it again this way. Some cultures are better than other cultures. This is not to say that the people are inherently better, but that grace has transformed those people and then by extent their families, their societies, and their broader culture to a greater degree. Say it again. It's not because there is something inherently better about those people. It is because grace has transformed individuals, enough individuals and families 
to where it has begun to affect the broader culture at large. There is, I think, in fact, a fatal error of the alt-right movement. Familiar with that kind of terminology, the alt-right? And that's probably a Maybe not the best term to just throw out there without specific definition because people may mean different things by it. The typical way that it's viewed by most of the people um, is that this is a fringe uh, movement that is very, um, should have written down a definition, it is very um, friendly toward racist um, white supremacist views. Okay, so the, the alt-right movement, if I can use it in that, that general sense. The fatal, there is a fatal error, as I say, in the alt-right movement. For example, the Proud Boys. Have you ever heard of the Proud Boys? Right? You've probably heard about them on the news. The Proud Boy, I listened to a, uh, a talk given by one of the leaders, I forget his name now, of the Proud Boys expressing pride in Western culture, standing up unashamedly for Western values that have made the modern world. And that kind of talk sometimes resonates with Christians because that much of Western culture has been shaped, formed, by a Christian worldview. If anything, the alt-right is proud and loud. But I want to remind us again that true Christianity doesn't make someone proud, inherently proud. It makes him what? It makes him humble. And if there is something good um, that he enjoys because of his because of his relationship with God, he ascribes it all to grace. Right? So, so there is a, there's already a fundamental jarring in that kind of, that kind of pride. Now, there is a, an element of, of being unashamed for, of a culture that's shaped by a Christian worldview to some, to a large degree that I say resonates, but true Christianity humbles. The radical truth, I think, is what the alt-right actually gets right. That is the radical truth that some cultures are better than others. The fatal flaw, I think, the fatal flaw of alt-right racism is naturalism. Say it again, the fatal flaw of alt-right racism is not the view that some cultures are better than others. That's a biblical reality. The fatal flaw of alt-right racism is naturalism. That is to say, the view that culture is a function of genetics, a function of quote-unquote race, rather than culture being a function of divine grace and divine revelation and theology and shared beliefs and worldview, which is what I've been arguing all through this text. Culture is a function of worldview. It's a function of religion. It is religion externalized. And once you take away that religious component and all you have, that spiritual component, and all you have is naturalistic worldview, you end up in racism. So it's tied to your genes now. And and because of that, we have a better culture. We say on the surface we're proud of our culture, but if culture is is, is only viewed naturalistically, it's going to lead you to racism. And sadly, that's exactly um, where a lot on the alt-right end up at least being sympathetic towards. Of course... All of this also fails to realize that culture is not monolithic, that quote-unquote white culture is um, filled with all kinds of sin and unbiblical thinking. 
I say this is a uh, this is a foundation. I hope that will at least help us to springboard into continuing to think more deeply about these things. Um, this is going to be a matter for a lot of wisdom on the part of God's people, a lot of critical biblical thinking, and uh, I hope that that you will uh, you will continue to pray that God would help you to think. Uh, biblically, scripturally, uh, about all that all that we face, the conversations that are going on. We need, boy, we need Christians. We need robust Christians. And the, the problem is, you know, um, in many cases, I think the Christianity is only viewed as, you know, it's just like we're in this we're in this category of Christians, but 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 the Bible doesn't help us as much to deal with these problems. I mean, this is kind of outside. This is beyond what the Bible has to say. When really the roots, at least the roots of dealing with all that we have to deal with in the culture and society um, are found in the scriptures. And uh, so may God, may God give us, give us wisdom. Heavenly Father, now we are recognizing that we live in a, a very uh, blessed uh, place, a culture that has been shaped largely by your word. But we also confess that we have departed so far from it. And uh, we pray that you may be gracious. You may be gracious to us as a, as a people. And that you would continue to raise up people who are absolutely committed to the Scriptures, uh, who are really robust in the explanation of the Word and the application of that to the culture, that we may be helped, uh, all of us, to walk in ways that are pleasing to you. We pray you'd bless every family, that we may, be, uh, we may have a family culture that pleases and honors you, we pray that you would cause us as the church to display a, uh, the culture of the kingdom, even in the midst of a wicked and perverse world in many ways, that the world may see the beauty, the love, the goodness, the truthfulness, the reality that is on display among your people. And uh, we pray may be drawn to it, may be convicted by it, and that it may do good uh, ultimately for your purposes in this world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.